We're still prayerfully considering uh, what to do during the 9 o'clock hour, so I just decided to pick a chapter to look at today. And I thought I'd pick this chapter because Paul argues that this is the most important thing, the one essential thing. And so if we're considering the new year and what we'd like the new year to look like and be about for us, one way to think about it is in terms of love and how we should pray that this year would be a year of greater love than ever before. Now, on the one hand, that seems like an easy thing because everybody talks about love and how wonderful love is and how love makes the world go around and 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 yet love is actually much more challenging than sometimes we realize. And so um, there are those like R.C. Sproul who would say, you know, if you really think about what 1 Corinthians 13 says and you do an in-depth study of it like Jonathan Edwards did or other people have done, you begin to realize just how much you desperately need the righteousness of Christ because the, the standard that we're called to in loving is a huge, huge standard, and yet it's a glorious and wonderful thing. It's indeed to be like God. So let's pray, and, and we'll look at that this morning. Father, we thank you so much for this new year. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can trust you for whatever is to come this year. We thank you that you've called us to love like you love. We've ca- you've called us to love you and to love others out of the overflow of our love for you. And so we pray that you'd remind us of things we've heard before, that you'd deepen our understanding, that you'd grant our Grant us a greater grace to love in greater, deeper, richer ways this year. And we pray that you would receive all the honor and the glory for it. Please just bless us now. Bless the children as well. And we pray that you would minister your truth to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let me read for us this very familiar chapter. It's a chapter that's often read at weddings, which we have a wedding that we're looking forward to very soon. We'll be talking about this afternoon. Uh, but let me just read this chapter and we'll go from there. It says in verse 1 I, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, And if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things love never fails but if there are gifts of prophecy they will be done away if there are tongues they will cease if there is knowledge it will be done away for we know in part and we prophesy in part but when the perfect comes the partial will be done away when i was a child i used to speak like a child think like a child reason like a child when i became a man i did away with childish things For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, 
but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. What I'd like to do is to show you another of the Bible Project videos that gives you a summary of the word for love, which is what we have here, the uh, Greek word agape, and how it is to be understood in the full biblical context. So let's watch this for a few minutes, and then we'll talk more about what Paul has to say in this chapter. So if you've heard of Jesus, you probably know about one of his famous teachings called the Golden Rule. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. And this, actually, is a restatement of something else that Jesus said, that the meaning of life is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's really beautiful, but what does he mean exactly by the word love? It's an unclear word in English, because you can love your mom and you can love pizza. And if the word love means the same thing in both of those cases, your mom's going to feel real bad. So what did Jesus mean in his language? Well, first of all, this love your neighbor phrase is a quotation from the Hebrew scriptures, where the word for love is ahava. However, the language Jesus spoke and taught in from day to day was a cousin language of Hebrew, that is Aramaic, in which the word for love is rachmah. But then, as Jesus' followers spread his teachings around the world, they translated them into Greek using the word agape. But here's what's fascinating. The earliest followers of Jesus who wrote the books of the New Testament in Greek, they didn't learn the meaning of agape by looking it up in ancient dictionaries. Rather, they looked to the teachings of Jesus and the story of his life to redefine their very concept of love. So one time, Jesus was asked about the most important command in the Jewish scriptures. And he first quoted from the ancient prayer in the Torah called the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So love for God is the most important thing. But then Jesus quickly followed up by saying another command from the Torah was also the most important, to love your neighbor as yourself. So which is the most important, loving God or loving your neighbor? Jesus' answer is yes. To ask the question means you don't get his point. For Jesus, they are two sides of the same coin. Your love for God will be expressed by your love for people and vice versa, they're inseparable. And so this makes it clear that for Jesus, agape love is not primarily a feeling for someone else that happens to you, like our phrase, I fell in love. For Jesus, love is action. It's a choice that you make to seek the well-being of people other than yourself. Jesus also went on to teach that genuine love for God and others means seeking people's well-being without expecting anything in return, especially from people who are in difficult situations who can't repay you even if they wanted to. According to Jesus, this kind of generous love reflects the very heartbeat of God. And he took this even further. Jesus said that the ultimate standard of authentic love is how well you treat the person that you can't stand. Or in his words, you shall love your enemy and do good to them, expecting nothing. Nothing in return. For Jesus, this kind of enemy-embracing love imitates the very character of God himself. Now, we wouldn't be talking about Jesus still today if he had only said things like love your enemy. This is how he actually lived. Jesus was constantly helping and serving the people around him in very practical and tangible ways. And he consistently moved towards poor and hurting people who couldn't benefit him in return. He showed love for the forgotten ones, the people who usually fall through the cracks. And when Jesus eventually marched into Jerusalem, he made himself an enemy of the leaders of his people by accusing them of hypocrisy and corruption. But then instead of attacking his enemies to overthrow them, he allowed them to kill him. Jesus died for the selfishness and corruption of his enemies because he loved them. 
After Easter morning, Jesus and then his followers claimed that it was the power of God's love for the world that was revealed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. As the Apostle Paul put it, God demonstrated his own agape for us in this. While we were still sinners, the Messiah died for us. Or in the words of the Apostle John, God's own agape was revealed when he sent his one and only son into the world so that through him we could have life. And for John, then, this leads naturally to the conclusion, beloved ones, if that's how God has loved us, then we ought to show love for one another. So Christian faith involves trusting that at the center of the universe is a being overflowing with love for his world, which means that the purpose of human existence is to receive this love that has come to us in Jesus and then to give it back out to others, creating an ecosystem of others-focused, self-giving love. And that's the New Testament meaning of agape love. So, just think about that for a second, what they're trying to communicate and and maybe what you typically think of when you think about love. If you were going to try to boil it down to uh, one or two things, and talking to your kids maybe, let's say, how would you try to explain the kind of love that God calls us to show one another? Think about that for a second, and if you have a thought that you'd like to share, feel free to raise your hand. But how, how can we get a, a grasp on what this love really is, this kind of love that God calls us to in its most basic form? And there's a lot to be said about it. Obviously, that video kind of summarizes a lot of different things the Bible says about the love of God and the love of Christ and what that means. But if we were just going to try and Boil it down. Is there anything that comes to your mind readily as at the heart of this kind of love? Obviously, in contrast to loving pizza and other kinds of love. Well, as you think about this, let me uh, give you an illustration. There's, I've told you the story before about this man who goes in to the doctor and they run a bunch of tests, and after all the tests are done and the results come back, the doctor walks in and says, um, I'm going to talk to your wife for a few minutes, and then we'll come back and, and give you the test results. And so he pulls the wife aside, and they go into another room, and the doctor begins talking about the test results for her husband and says, you know what, your husband has this rare disease. And as a result, in order for him to survive Um, as long as possible and have the best quality of life, uh, you're going to have to do some things around your your home. You're going to have to keep it spotless. You're going to have to cook all these very special foods. You're going to have to make sure that his life is stress-free. And so he just goes down this long list of all the kinds of things that she was going to have to do in order to make his treatment uh, and his prognosis as positive and as successful as possible and so she's nodding her head all this while while she's listening to the doctor and the doctor says go on in back back in with your husband and I'll be in in a few minutes and we'll talk more about this so she goes back in to her husband and her uh, husband looks at her and says honey well what did the doctor say and she looks at him with a, a blank stare and says 
The doctor said you're going to die. Now, you've heard that story before, and basically what she's saying is, there's no way I'm doing all that in order to make things comfortable for you. Now, why would I tell that story? Now, if you look at 1 John 3, you can keep your finger in 1 Corinthians, but look at 1 John 3.16. In 1 John 3.16, we have what I think is a very good summary definition of the kind of love that's being talked about in 1 Corinthians 13. That's why I want to start here, because Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't give us a definition per se, uh, but he describes for us what this kind of love does. And so I want to start out with a little more um, a specific kind of definition before we get into 1 Corinthians 13. First John 3.16, John says, We know love by this. Okay, so this is how we can define it. This is how we can identify it. We know love by this, that he, speaking of Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And so you could argue that if, that if the heart of the kind of love that was described in the video and the kind of love that Paul is describing here in 1 Corinthians 13 is a love that lays down its life for someone else. And that's what the woman was being called to do. She was basically being called to lay down her life for the sake of her husband. And... We mentioned the fact that 1 Corinthians 13 is often read at weddings, um, which is very, very appropriate because that's what we're calling uh, people to when they get married, and that's what they're calling each other to. They're calling each other to love each other, and you can apply it to parenting as well. You know, how are we going to love this child? How am I going to love my spouse? What does it really mean to say I love you? And it can be a very feeling-oriented kind of thing, so that when I say I love you, I mean I have warm feelings toward you. But does it mean I'm ready to lay down my life for you? I'm, I'm ready to do whatever it needs I need to do to pursue your good, including my own sacrifice, my own pain, my own suffering. Is that really what we're saying when we say I love you? Or are we simply saying I have nice feelings for you, have nice, you know, thoughts about you. And so 1 Corinthians 13 is calling us to think differently about love because the world loves in the sense of having warm, fuzzy feelings or nice thoughts at different times, at least for their friends, not necessarily for their enemies, obviously. And so it's helpful to, at the beginning of the year, truly think in light of all of our relationships, whether it's with our spouse or with our children or with our co-workers or with our friends uh, or with our enemies, people that we know that don't really care for us too much. We have a tense relationship, a difficult relationship. The question is, are we truly committed to loving those people in the way that Paul talks about here and if if we are, then we can pray in light of that. Well, let me just have us look, first of all, at the first three verses. And um, I'll read those again. And I'd like you to think about what strikes you 
in terms of what Paul is actually saying here, and we'll talk about it for a few minutes. He says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. All right, as you think about those verses, um, what strikes you in terms of what Paul is really trying to do in these verses? What do you think he's really trying to tell us by talking about these kinds of things in contrast to, to love? What do you think his point is? Hope? It seems like he's showing that love is more of a heart issue and a heart attitude than what your actions necessarily show. Okay. All right. Very good. So the first verse says, if I speak, <clears throat> words can be cheap, right? You know, like I just said, we could say, I love you, um, but that, that can carry very little weight or very little significance. It's, it's something that we can say very easily in various contexts and yet not really think about what that should mean and what kind of commitment that should be to that person. Um, we can speak very eloquently um, and still not have love. And so he talks about speaking in verse 1. He talks about spiritual gifts, that you can be a very gifted person that you can even do um, some amazing things like remove mountains. You know, you would think, wow, that sounds like a, like a very um, extraordinary thing to do. seems like something that um, only you could do if um, you were doing something uh, that was pleasing to God, right? And yet he says, if I... Have faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love. I am nothing. And that nothing means from God's perspective. He's talking about from God's perspective. That you can be an eloquent speaker. You can have extraordinary natural gifts and extraordinary spiritual gifts. Yet if you don't have love, then from God's perspective, then your life is nothing. At least nothing in terms of what it's ought to to be or what it's meant to be what it was designed to be and then in verse 3 if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love it profits me nothing now think about that in terms of what I just said about laying down your life surrendering your body to be burned sounds like laying down your life and yet he says there's a, there's a way to lay down your life and yet not lay down your life. How could that be? Not lay down your life in the way of 1 John 3.16. That's the point. So how could that happen? How could you, in some sense, literally lay down your life, but not fulfill 1 John 3.16, where we're to lay down our lives for others, just like Christ laid down his life for us? Those two verses are being con contrasted there. Mark? Yeah, I mean, as I think about, you know, prior in verse or in chapter 12, we see um, 
you know, in a sense, membership as as members of the body of Christ, um, the gospel working in you will cause these results, right? So we see, and then these, you know, in love, that's participation in the gospel. That's the outflowing of the gospel of Christ, right? Without God, we can do nothing that isn't motivated by selfish ambition, idolatry of self, ultimately. So in all these things, apart from the redeeming work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we will be pursuing self, ultimately, right? Where when um, when the Holy Spirit is at work in us, we take the focus of ourselves by His grace to love others through the power of His death on the cross, and it becomes a worship, an act of worship that could not happen apart from the gospel. Very good. <clears throat> We've just started to read a book that is about a woman who's called the female Schindler who helped to rescue thousands of children in World War II. And um, as far as we know, she wasn't a Christian, right? And so you've got Schindler, and as far as I know, he wasn't a Christian either. But they did some extraordinary things and risked their own lives. And I'm not even sure how her story ends. But um, they risked their own lives uh, to save children. And they did some great, great things. And and yet, Paul could say, if, along the lines of what Mark was saying, if those kinds of extraordinary efforts to do good to others and even lay down your life in some sense for someone else is not rooted in a love for God and in faith in God through Christ, then Paul would say, even though it does benefit people and it does bless people in various ways, ultimately from God's perspective, it is it profits them nothing because we were created to glorify and enjoy God. And so even though we're, we're doing something that blesses people, helps people, is doing good to people, we still miss the the primary mark of our life, the primary mark of our life is to glorify and enjoy God, is to love God. The number one commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so Jonathan Edwards, as he works through 1 Corinthians 13, argues that, let me, I'll just read it for you. He puts it this way. He says, love to God is the foundation of gracious love to men. And men are loved either because they are in some respect like God in the possession of his nature and spiritual image or because of the relation they stand in to him as his children or creatures, as those who are blessed of him or to whom his mercy is offered or in some other way from regard to him. Basically, he's saying that the kind of love that Paul is talking about here and that God calls us to is a love for man that flows out of my love for God. And therefore, I love people because they've been created in the image of God or because they're children of God. That it's all related to God. It's a God-driven love for people. And so that's why Paul could say that even unbelievers can do extraordinary things, and yet God does not see that as being ultimately the fulfillment of the love he calls us to. Because the love he calls us to is to love him and out of that to love others. So 
And that gets back to what Hope was saying about it's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of what is my heart toward God? And so when you look at, you know, men like Schindler or the, the female Schindler, and you look at the extraordinary things that they do, Bible, the Bible says God looks at the heart. And that's why for all of us this year, we don't want to simply look at what we do. We want to ask the question, why am I even doing it? You know, is it the overflow of my love for God? Is it the overflow of my gratitude to Christ for what he's done for me? Or is it something else? Is, 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 it, is there a motivation that is much more um, worldly rather than godly? Is it a godly motivation? And so the first three verses just highlight the fact that the issue is the heart, not just what we do. And it's a heart for God, not just for the benefit of people. Okay, well, look, we could spend a lot of time on a lot of these, but I want to get to this list of um, various things that Paul talks about here in verses 4 through 8, where he says, Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Well, um, before I move on, we were actually... We we're trying to watch the um, the Lincoln movie. We didn't get very far because there's a lot of bad language in the Lincoln movie. But there there is a quote in there from a guy named Thaddeus Stevens, who was a Republican representative under Lincoln. And he and Lincoln are talking about um, trying to get the passage of the 13th Amendment and all that's going on there. And Basically, Thaddeus Stevens, this Republican, uh, says something along these lines. He says, and they're talking about the American people. He says, who cares about the people and what they want and what they're ready for? I don't care at all about the people and what they want. This is the face of someone, talking about himself, this is the face of someone who has fought long and hard for the good of the people without caring much for any of them. It's kind of going back to what Hope was saying again, just to re- reiterate, that kind of attitude is is the very kind of attitude that Paul is speaking against, that I'm going to do what's right, even though I don't have much of a heart for the people I'm doing what's right for. Paul is saying, don't ever settle for a heart that doesn't care about the people you're serving, Always care about whether or not you have a heart for God and whether or not you have a heart for people that overflows out of your heart for God. So that the heart issue is always crucial to our loving. Um, in verses 4 through 8, <clears throat> we see that this love is gracious and practical. Um, when you think about the idea of laying down your life, um, what what is the the hardest thing about that? 
what kinds of things make laying down your life hard? Daniel? It would all depend on the circumstance, but sacrificing anything you have um, for anybody, especially in relationships. Um, I remember I had an old coworker at one of my earlier jobs a long, long time ago, um, and he, I always felt like he talked down to me. Um, and I had to bite my tongue every time and not say, there's a few times I kind of snapped at him, not too bad, but you know, um, but there, there's a lot of times I had to try to swallow my pride and just not talk back to him because I, I believe that I love God and I'm going to follow what he says. And if I love God, that means I should also love other people. So even if it, if it completely bothers me every time I see this person, every time I talk to them, that doesn't mean I can react wrongly against them. Um, I still have to love God and then love them by showing them good actions. Okay. All right. And so it's not a comfortable thing, right? If, if somebody's talking down to you or it makes it a hard, it's a difficult situation to love. Melody? This might sound strange, but I feel like in, in my season of life, laying down my life is very repetitive because with the little one, it's like the same, you know, we do the same routine and I love her to death, but I feel like it's lots of, you know, cooking and washing dishes and cleaning up after baby and putting baby down. And it's just, it's a very, I, I love it, but sometimes it's, it is like, wow, this is, I do the same thing every day. And you, you kind of like, if it were up to me, we would, it would be a more adventurous life today, you know, but sometimes it looks very repetitive, and that's okay, you know. It's very good. I mean, uh, loving isn't necessarily a glamorous thing. I mean, that's a great illustration of how mundane, so to speak. I mean, mundane sounds like a bad word, but it basically just means ordinary, routine. Um, the love that God calls us to can be very, very routine, and yet very, very important. Um, I mean, like someone has said, um, plenty of men avow their readiness to lay down their lives for their wives and children at the first threat of violence, but to get them to lay down their paper and pick up a dish child is almost impossible. Which means it's very easy to say, I'll, I'll defend you, honey. You know, if anybody ever breaks in, I'm going to be right there to defend you. But as far as laying down your life to do just normal, everyday, servant kinds of things. We struggle more with that in some sense. Daniel? I was thinking about that too in the First Corinthians when it said, um, if I move mountains but do not love, it means nothing. So if you think even about our modern day, we have a lot of superheroes. and They can do a lot of great things, but if, if there's no love involved in what they do, then that means nothing compared to if you go and pick up in dish towel and start cleaning the dishes that means something while if you have some sort of great gift or something that doesn't mean anything if you're not doing it for the right purposes okay very good very good yeah, even superman needs to pick up his socks so so your question was what why is it uncomfortable what what yeah what makes it so hard? hard to lay down our lives um it, it often involves dying to yourself your wants your needs um dreams maybe um it can be uncomfortable. Um, it's not what you necessarily well. It's not what you want. So that's dying to yourself. <laughs> yeah, it's, dying is a painful thing. Laying on your life is a painful thing, in various ways. I think a lot of times it's similar to what everyone's saying, but it goes unnoticed, and it should be unnoticed in a sense because you're doing it not to be noticed. You're doing it because it's 
love, but at the same time, because it's unnoticed, it makes it more difficult to do. Very good. Yeah, if you've got somebody encouraging you or patting you on the back, it, it helps a little bit. But if you're not getting that encouragement, then you have to really believe that God sees, and that's that's faith, right, Mark? Yeah, in a sense, it's an exchange. It's always an exchange in this this side of eternity, where it's it's exchanging my comfort, my energy, my resources for something, right? And so, in the sense of defending your home, yes, you you are putting yourself in danger, but but what you're exchanging it for is potentially glory and recognition and this grand thing. But when you're when you're doing some mundane task that may not seem glorious, the exchange doesn't seem worthwhile, right? But we have to recognize that there is an eternal element to this exchange that we exchange our own. You know, resources for future glory and grace in Christ, and that that it far outweighs anything tangible. So, in a sense, it's it's believing what we don't see this side of eternity. And I'm thinking, you know, the situations, for example, even when Jesus wept, when um, um, totally spacing out. Lazarus died, right? Um, this side of eternity, there's always going to be that sense of loss, you know, loss. And no matter how much we're leaning on Christ, we're going to struggle against that um, that exchange. That exchange doesn't feel right, but we we believe it is. And you know, anyway. So I, I need to think about that more. But I think there's something there. Very good. So very true. There's a, there's a lot in these um, verses in terms of the various practical ideas. Uh, patience has to do with uh, long suffering, suffering long. Uh, kind, obviously, is the idea of treating others like you'd want to be treated. Not being jealous is not being grasping or possessive. Not bragging, not arrogant. Uh, one is being outwardly proud, the other is being inwardly proud. Not acting unbecomingly. Uh, a lot of people see that in terms of knowing how to carry yourself appropriately in various different situations. Not seeking your own is not being selfish. Not being provoked means not being easily angered. Um, not taking into account a wrong suffered means being ready to forgive. Or uh, some translate it, thinks no evil, uh, which has to do with the idea of thinking charitable, loving thoughts toward others as much as possible. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness means to hate evil. Rejoicing with the truth means to love what is right and good. And obviously to bear, believe, hope, and endure is not to be affected by circumstances, but to be consistent. But I'd like to focus on two of these in light of what Jonathan Edwards says in his uh, sermons on this uh, chapter, Charity and Its Fruits. Um, He talks about the issue of patience. And I just want to read a little section of what he says here because... um, I think sometimes we just need to be challenged with regard to what it really means to love like Christ loves. And so this is his one section on the issue of patience. And he says uh, he's going to talk about why it's called long-suffering or suffering long. And he says, because we ought meekly to bear not only a small injury, but also a great deal of injurious treatment from others. We should continue in quiet frame without ceasing still to love our neighbor not only when he injures us a little, but also when he injures us much, when the injuries which he does are great. And we should not only thus bear a few injuries, but a great many. And though our neighbor continues his injurious treatment to us a long time, when it is said that charity suffers long, we cannot infer from it that it does not imply that we should always continue uh, 
meekly to bear injuries even to the end of life. He's basically saying, he's not saying long, but not until the end. He's saying, no, it actually means until the end. The meaning is not that we should bear injuries indeed a long time, but may lawfully cease to bear them at last. But the meaning is that we should meekly bear injuries, though they are long continued, that we should not only bear it when men injure us a little while and then soon repent of it, but we should meekly bear it, though they continue in their injuriousness a long time, yea, let it be ever so long. So he's basically saying that the love that God calls us to isn't a I'm done with you kind of love. It's a suffer long kind of love. That I'm committed to loving you even though you continue to talk down to me, even though you continue to rub me the wrong way, even though you continue to disrespect me and uh, disobey me or, or whatever it might be, that the love that we're called to bears injury. And that's a huge part of why it's so hard to lay down your life to love people is because they're poking you in the eye. Get poked in the eye. You don't want to get poked in the eye again. But he's basically arguing that's what patience does. It gets poked in the eye over and over and over again. Not literally, obviously, but in terms of the pain and the disappointment and the hurt, uh, we can be offended over and over and over again. And the question is, this year, when that happens, what will we do? When someone offends us repeatedly, when someone pokes us in the eye repeatedly, when someone disappoints us repeatedly, will we continue seeking to love them? Will we continue praying for them? Will we continue looking for good things to do for them like the Bible says we should? Will we continue to lean in or will we walk away? And I guarantee you that there are going to be situations where we're going to just want to walk away. We're going to want to quit. We're going to get, want to give up. And Paul encourages us by putting it at the very head of the list. Love is patient. It keeps on loving even when the other person isn't loving. That's the whole idea. It's easy to love people who love us in return. It's very painful and difficult to love people who do not love you in return. And yet, um, Jonathan Edwards will go on to talk about the fact that our, our vision for how to do this is God himself. And over and over again, he says, you basically just need to fix your heart and mind on God and how he treats you. That's why the Bible says, forgive as you have been forgiven, accept as you have been accepted, love as you have been loved, which forces me not to look at how the other person is treating me, but forces me to look at how God is treating me and how patient God has been with me and how forgiving God has been to me and how accepting God has been of me with all my failures and all my sin and all my weakness. And so, That's why it all goes back to our love for God. 
that I have to get my mind off of the person who's offending me and on to God and, and to see how well he's loving me and let that feed my love for that person over and over again. There's one other um, one I'll highlight in verse 5 where it says, does not take into account a wrong suffered. In some translations that's translated differently, more along the lines of uh, thinks no evil. And um, the way that Jonathan Edwards takes it is in terms of what he calls... Um, How's he put it here? It says basically that we're not to speak uncharitably of people. He says we have to be careful of a disposition to put the worst construction on men's actions, not only in judging that things are done by them when they have not sufficient evidence of it, but in putting bad construction on those actions which are evident when they will admit of a good construction. Now basically what he's saying is, we can assume the worst of other people. We can hear a rumor um, and we can latch onto it and assume that it's true without any evidence that it's really true. Or we can, uh, we can read people's actions and we can read the worst motivations for those actions rather than the best motivations. We can assume that they did that uh, just to be mean or to be proud or just to glorify themselves, or whatever it may be. We can, we can read into people's actions um, our own assessment of what motivated them to do that and give it the worst construction possible. And he's saying that is the opposite of what Paul is calling us to, that we're called to put the best construction on people's words and actions. Rather than assuming the worst of people, assume the best unless you have sufficient evidence to the contrary. And therefore, you don't pass along rumors and things that you have no evidence of. And therefore, you don't go around imagining uh, all the wrong motivations for why they said what they said or why they did what they did. Um, it's so very easy for us to do that. So very easy for us, especially when we're interacting with people. We can hear them say something, and because of our history with them, we can assume the worst sometimes. Or because of some something else, we might assume the worst. And Paul says we have to be very, very careful of that, and Jonathan Edwards encourages us to be careful of that. Um He says they are so forward in judging ill and judge on such slight evidence and carry the matter to such extremes in judgment as shows that their inclination is in it. They love to think the worst of others. Such a well-pleasedness in judging ill of others is also manifested in being forward to declare their judgments and to speak as well as think ill of others. But he says, on the contrary, if we're loving like Christ... We will be very cautious when we hear about negative reports from others. We will go no further in the evidence than the evidence obliges. We will think the best that the nature of the case will admit, and we will put the best construction on others' words and actions. And to me, that's very challenging. It's, very, it's meant to say that people do have bad motivations. 
people do say and do things to hurt other people. But we need not jump to that conclusion without sufficient evidence. We need not just automatically assume uh, those kinds of things because the reality is we want people to assume the best of us. How often, you know, have we said something and someone's offended and we reply with, well, that's not what I meant. I, I didn't mean for you to take it that way. I didn't mean for you to be offended. That wasn't, that wasn't what was going on in my heart. And so we, we want people to put the best construction on what we say and what we do. And that's why we need to pray for grace to do the same thing in all of our relationships as well. Well, C.S. Lewis said this. He said, Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor at... Excuse me. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets... When you're behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. Now, the question I want to ask is, is that contrary to the idea that we need to make sure our heart is in loving people? If it's not contrary, how do you put those two things together? C.S. Lewis says, don't wait until you feel like you love someone or think you love someone. Act like you love them. Is that consistent with caring about whether or not you have a heart for that person? And if so, how do those two things fit together? Amal? This has been always helpful to uh, see the love in my heart is only known to you when I express it, which means it has to be sometimes a situation where you cannot express, but you still make every effort to communicate that one. Then only it's like as much as what good is it like you have tons of love in your heart and I don't know about it. And the same sense, like acting out or like, you know, you have like, I love children, I love girl babies. I, every time I, I hold a baby, every time I, I, I express my love, that's when it's growing. And it's growing towards good. It's not that it's just acted out. It's, it helps in my love, to, to affirming the, the, there's a confirmation in my heart that yes, I do love. Okay. All right. Very good. I think that's part of what he's saying. Is that um, Sharon? You want to add to that? Oh, Jackson and then Sharon. <clears throat> I think it has to do with uh, where you root that love. And so, if even if you don't feel love towards someone, but you're acting loving towards them because of the love of Christ for you and for that person. That's the root of the love. And from there, God transforms you, sanctifies you during that process so that you can have a heart of loving for that person. Okay, very good. Sharon, right up here. Jonathan, thank you. 
this is a simple thing. What you've taught us is to love, or you do the good thing and trust God for the good. Or you do the hard thing, not the good thing. Do the hard thing and trust God for the good. And that's so true that that happens. And when you do that, you know, your heart, God will do it. He tells us, you know, that he will. Those who know his name will trust in him. For in God, you know, he gives us, you know, the, well, the needs of my very good, very good. Hope? I think everyone who just shared really hit it. Um, it's where the rubber meets the road with faith and that um, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. And so the Lord commands me to do something and I obey whether or not I feel those love emotions. It's deciding to do right. I think Jackson said it really well, what he said. But... Um, yeah, just doing what we're called to do, whether or not it feels really good, choosing to love. And hopefully our heart follows our faith and our actions. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. So we don't wait until we feel like we should or we feel like our heart's where it ought to be. We embrace the fact that this is what God calls me to do. And so I, just like you've said in various ways, we trust God to work in our hearts even as we pursue obedience. We pursue love. We seek to love the person in the way that we should. Well, let me um, to kind of wrap up here. Um, obviously, the picture that we have here of love here is it's basically laying down your life out of a heart for God and where we Where we lack a heart for God, we should be asking God to do that in us this year. Grow us in our love for God. Grow us in our desire for God. Grow us in our uh, worship of God, our praise of God, our thanks of God. Realizing that we're going to be more loving people to our spouse and to our kids and to our church and to our co-workers. The more we love God, the more we'll love other people. And so we don't want to neglect our relationship with God. We don't want to neglect our heart for God. We want to feed our heart for God so that we can grow in our love for others. And yet realize that, as was highlighted in the video, much of life is going to be like what it says in Luke 6.35, where Jesus said, "...but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return." And your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. If we only love looking for the return, we're not going to love very long or very well. For for just looking to love people that give us something in return. Um, They give us the relationship we want. They give us the pat on the back we want. They give us... You know, whatever it is we're looking for from them, we're not going to love very long. We're not going to love very well. And in order to love God like God loves, we have to expect nothing in return from them, but everything in return from God. And that's why earlier we talked about um, just doing the little things like cleaning dishes or or whatever it might be. Jesus said, if you give the a cup of cold water to a little child in the name of Jesus, you will not lose your reward. Which I 
believe means anything I do in this life to the glory of God, God is going to reward that. Now, no one else may reward it. No one else may say thank you. No one else may acknowledge it or even see it. But God sees every diaper you change and God sees every mouth you wipe and God sees all of that. And if we're doing it for the glory of God, he will reward those things. And that love will be honored and we will be blessed as a result of it. One of the things that Paul does in wrapping up this chapter, and I'll end with this too, is he basically says that uh, spiritual gifts and various things are going to end, but love will last forever. And you think about that. What, what does that really mean? Well, one way to picture it is I've told the story before of a man who dreams a dream, and he's taken to hell and he's taken to heaven. And you might recall in the story People in hell are seated around a table, and people in heaven are seated around a table. People in hell have a spoon tied to their hand that's really, really long. People in heaven have a spoon tied to their hand that's really, really long. In hell, the people are weeping and gnashing their teeth and totally frustrated. People in heaven are rejoicing and having a great time. So what's the difference between the two groups in the dream? Well, in hell, the people with the long, long spoon tied to the end of their their uh, hand are dipping it into the food on the table, and they cannot put it in their mouths because the, the uh, spoon is too long for them to get it into their mouths. So they're starving, and they're angry, and they're bitter, and they're all in their own little worlds. In heaven, they have the same situation. Food on the table, long spoon tied to their hand. They're dipping it into the, the, uh, the food and feeding each other. And they're rejoicing. That is a picture of what heaven's going to be like. It's going to be an eternity of serving one another. Why? Because that's what God does. God loves God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit love each other. They serve each other. They fellowship together. And that's what it's going to be like in heaven. It's going to be serving one another and enjoying the fruit of that service. In a sense, laying down our lives for one another forever. That's what it's going to be like. That's what heaven is going to be like. And so Paul encourages us to realize that the one thing that's going to last is a love that lays down its life for others. And it's through that 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 Jesus could say, if you embrace that kind of lifestyle, you'll have my joy. You'll have my joy because that's the way I am. And if you become more like me, you'll have my joy in it all. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We pray that just for a few minutes to think about the nature of love, the love that you call us to, how difficult it can be in various situations, how painful it can be, how hard and long it can be. I pray at the same time you would help us to see how glorious and wonderful it is to be like you, be long-suffering and patient and kind and to serve Uh, even those who uh, give nothing in return, 
Um, we pray, Father, that you would help us to embrace more and more that kind of love in our lives, to pray for it, uh, to work for it, to seek to apply it in our marriages and in our families and in our workplace and in our church and in the world in which we live, and that you would truly be glorified this year in 2020 in greater, richer ways as we love like that, uh, more and more like you do. We can't do it apart from you. It's truly the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so please help us to pray and to ask you for what we need. And then help us to step out in faith and to trust you to enable us to love in this way more and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you very much. Let's take a break.